Hello and welcome to Talking to the Top, a podcast made by students for students. My name is Freddie. And I'm Ed. And we will be your hosts. Throughout these episodes, we will give you an insight into the lives and minds of incredibly successful individuals in their respective fields, allowing you to learn more about the world that lies ahead of us, and most importantly, how our brilliant guests got to where they are today. So sit back, relax, and join us as we dive deep into the stories of these amazing individuals, uncovering the secrets to their success and exploring the many twists and turns of their careers. With roughly three decades of experience in his field, James Palmer, today's guest, is not only a managing director at the Bank of America, but is also the head of equity capital markets for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. When James is not having death threats shouted at him in the New York Stock Exchange or bolting around Italian racetracks, he enjoys spending time with his family and, when time allows, exploring his wide range of interests in both sport and the arts. With his advice on moving forward from perceived failure and learning from our knowledge of the past to have faith in an ever-changing future, James has been a brilliant guest to have on the show. So, I guess to just get started, if you could give us a little introduction to yourself, kind of what you've done in your career and what led you to be at the point you are now would be amazing. Sure, absolutely. So, my name is James Palmer. I currently work at Bank of America here in London, and I run a business called Equity Capital Markets, which I run on a regional basis for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, so wow. EMEA as we call it. Before joining Bank of America, I actually had a rather short sojourn at Credit Suisse here in London. And then before that, I had 21 years at UBS. I joined UBS in London in 1996, but I went to New York with UBS in June 1998. So that was meant to be a six-month stop in New York. Then it was meant to be two years, and it ended up being just over 20 years. So I came back from New York in August 2018 uh, to London, joined Credit Suisse, as I mentioned, and then pretty quickly then jumped to Bank of America, November 2019, where I've been since. And was that something that kind of when you were younger, you were like, yeah, this is definitely what I want to go into when I'm older? Or did you have no idea? No, I would. I have no uh, lack of confidence in my memory it was completely accidental so essentially what happened i read history at university which i absolutely loved mm-hmm. and when i finished my degree and probably a year going into finishing my degree i had absolutely no idea what i wanted to do and then somehow i came up with the idea of going to law school afterwards and i remember saying to my father I'd say dad I'm, i'd really like to go to law school after university and he's like listen I don't believe you, but, you know, I'll support you for the first year. So you may know there's a, I don't know why they still do it, but at the time there was a thing called the law conversion course. And if you did a degree in something that wasn't law for a year, you could go to law school and get up to law degree standard within a year. And the idea was if you've got a degree already, you should be on a fast track to getting a law degree. But my my father was 100% correct. I was only doing it because I didn't know what the hell else to do. And rather than just sitting around, you know, with my feet out watching the test match, it seemed like a good idea to at least do something constructive, which was to go to law school. And my first term in law school, I actually really enjoyed because it was quite comparable to history, my history degree, because it was really constitutional history to understand the English law, which I really enjoyed. And then when it moved more to the transactional technical side of um, the English law, I found it candidly pretty tedious. 
And then it was a lot of self-reflection whether I was doing the right thing or not. And then I will tell you a true story, which was, you know, my, I remember my, again, I'm very close to my father, I still am, and a lot of his guidance is, I've been very affected by. And one of the things he said to me many years ago was, you never want to be the guy that doesn't buy you around in the pub. <laughs> and so when I was at law school, you know, I was a student, so I didn't have that much money. I had a little bit of a handout from my dad, but that was about it. And while I was at law school, all my friends had started jobs. And so they were getting the first job, therefore their first salary. And, you know, we were young guys who used to go out a lot in London. And there was one night where everyone was meeting in whatever pub it was. And I put the card in the wall, as we used to back in the day. And the bank swallowed my card because I was in, I was had an overdraft and it wouldn't give me any more cash. And not nice. <laughs> not nice. And I remembered my father's instruction was, you never want to be the guy that can't buy around. And I suddenly realized if I go tonight, I can't buy my round. So I didn't go. And then when I got home that night, I thought that's really... I didn't enjoy that feeling. And so suddenly my my focus became, so what the hell am I going to do? So I can't afford to buy my round. So I need to find a job, essentially. So yeah. I really spent the back half of my college of law time really just thinking what the hell I should do. To be honest, it was a pretty unimpressive, non-creative idea to go into finance just because mm. I kind of thought that seems to be where people seem to do all right. And so I'll give it a go. And so at that point, I wrote in the old days, you used to kind of write letters to different banks to, you know, try and get interviews and all this good stuff. And one lesson for me, and I would always encourage people to think about this, is when they go through it, is there will be a lot of rejection. I've still got somewhere under a lot of dust, a big file of all the letters I wrote, because I kept a copy of the letters I'd written, and all the rejection letters that I got. But in the end, I met someone who knew someone in a small firm rather than a big bank like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan or Bank of America, whatever. And he just said, listen, well, just come along. Come and work for us for a bit, work a little bit in each different department. And so I did. They didn't pay me anything, but I did that. And I got a sense because it was a small firm that did a lot of the things that big firms do, but just on a much smaller basis. I got experience of all the different sides. So on the sales side, on the trading side, corporate finance side, and I had a sense of what was more interesting to me. I was lucky enough at the end of that, they offered me a job. Wow. So I took that job and it's a little firm that doesn't exist anymore. It's called Greg Middleton. So I started that job. That was my first job, 21st of November, 1994. And I did that for 18 months or so. And then I was beginning to feel the frustration of working in a small organization that didn't really have a structured way of essentially educating me or just giving me the training that I needed for the business. And so, again, referencing several things that don't happen anymore, but in the old days, we always used to read the Financial Times physically. <laughs> there was an advert in the Financial Times one day that was for an associate director, which is you, when you go into a bank, you go in as an analyst and the next one is associates, the next level. Uh, at UBS and I responded to that advert I got an interview did a couple of interviews and I got a job and so that got me in there in June 96 so I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do and like lots of things in life it was a lot of chance involved in ultimately what's happened since so it was very much just taking those small steps to slowly build up to where you are I think that's right it's you know one thing I've learned particularly because it's the language of the business I'm in, is an appreciation of, of option value, right? So the worst thing in life is when you don't have options, right? So when you're metaphorically trapped in the corner 
when you have options, that's a good thing. You feel good, right? I could go left, I could go right, yeah. I could go straight. And one of the great things about education is that if you take it seriously, it'll give you options. And in and terms of options, doing a history degree is probably not the most conventional route into a career like banking. And did you find that that actually limited your options or was it not a problem? Because I think there is a lot of pressure to kind of have an idea of what you want to do when you kind of grow up. Yes, I think that's uh, a very good question. And remember, I didn't know I was going to go into finance. Mm -hmm. So I didn't Mm -hmm. think, ooh, this may not be perfect for finance. But one thing I have found in the interview process, now I am within a very big financial services company, is a lot of selections by people other than me are based on someone's proven acumen in economics, mathematics, you know, etc. But I would tell you for me, and it's primarily reflecting my own background, I actually try and do the opposite because the specific role that I have, and remember I work for a massive institution which has all sorts of different functions and roles within it. And there are some roles which are very technical where having a proven early ability to do lots of detailed technical numerical things is really, really important. But for what I do, it's much more what I call the art versus the science. If you're good or not good at my role, it depends typically on your ability to communicate with people in a concise and effective way. It's your ability to build and develop relationships, human relationships with people. And it's your ability to sometimes lead like I do, but if not lead, be part of a team and operate effectively within a team, either leading it or just as a a regular member of it. So all these things are much more important than your ability to do, you know, algebra or calculus or whatever it is. But if you're trading FX derivatives, um, then you probably should have a pretty good understanding of (laughs) maths, physics, you know, et cetera. But I will tell you when I look at, CVs, I'm much more focused on looking for evidence of just interesting human beings, because I think a proven truism in life is when clients can, and they can't always, but when they can, they will always choose to do business with someone that they like. And to a certain extent, you can teach, you know, you can learn mathematics skills, but you can't learn how to be a human being that people want to talk to. And and, and also, just as importantly, within a very large institution, which I work in, and not everyone in finance works in a big institution, but I do, there is always somebody that you can get access to that has that technical ability that you, or that technical analysis that you need. And so that's typically been my approach is, there's always someone that knows the answer. And as long as you can find that person and you can front it and, and give that solution to a client based on someone else's work then you'll probably be in an okay place who were is there a specific individual who you kind of looked up to when you were beginning um your career and did they influence you in any way to kind of make you follow a certain route within financing not particularly no i don't, I don't think so i think you naturally find people that you warm to like i think there's a certain assessment of success You know, I think people who are not in my industry just assume that everyone in my industry is obsessed with money and all they can talk about are money. That happens to be an element of measurement of success in an absolute way. You know, we have bonuses and all that kind of stuff. But actually, for me, and while that was nice because I like nice things and that, you know, 
this business allows you to have access to those things in an easier way than other industries. But for me, it was I was more naturally drawn to people within the industry that, as well as that, had you know constructive lives. You know, had good friends, mm. successful families, did interesting things on in holidays in the evenings. You know, actually made use of the fruits uh, of success in, in the industry. But I never had anyone that I said, well, I want to be that person. But mm. I had people that I naturally warmed to. There's one guy that I can I think of in particular that I remember probably gave me the best piece of advice, which is within your chosen career, in our case, financial services, you want to be sure to do something different every three years. And the reason he said that, and I've seen very, very successful people follow that pretty religiously. And the notion is, one, you just motivate yourself because you're always trying something new, mm. right? So it's intellectually stimulating. It's professionally stimulating. You're doing something. You're never in a rut of, where, oh, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm tired and old. You know, I should be doing something else. You're doing it every three years. You're constantly challenging yourself. But to people above you who are looking about giving promotions to certain people, the more that you have a proven history of an ability to do something different, the more likely you are to be thought of if a bigger job, a bigger opportunity, a different opportunity comes up. So I have never followed that good advice, not intentionally, but I just, mm -hmm. just have but I have I have observed many people who have and it's it's a pretty good piece of advice. Are there any other pieces of your own advice um, which you think are really just useful for anyone who is thinking about going into a career in finance? Certainly, and funnily enough, we've just had our summer interns join us this morning in, in my team. So I've uh -huh. got six or seven fresh-faced summer <laughs> interns. And, you know, my advice to them very simply this morning, we have a we start the week with a 7.30 meeting, um, and they're all sitting there fresh-faced like this. And, you know, my advice to them was ask questions in, in a constructive, interested way. I think my frustration, but also sometimes my disappointment with younger people coming into the industry sometimes is just not being that intrigued. And I would say this is true of every aspect of life. It's not just starting a job in financial services. Starting a job as a university professor, a teacher, a lawyer doesn't make any difference. But people like engaged, you know, interested people that are intrigued and are prepared to show interest in something and ask good questions because this industry is not for everybody in the same way that plenty of other industries aren't right for you know other people mm -hmm. but you need to find that out and the, and the and the firms need to find that out about you so my primary piece of advice on finance is the same for any other field is be prepared like show the respect to the people that you're asking potentially to get a career with from read up you know, so you're you're informed and show genuine interest in, in, in what you're doing, what others are doing, so that you can, you know, create a better offering to yourself, but also the people around you. Mm. And I think it's quite reassuring for me, at least, to hear how you can kind of, from what I understand, choose subjects that you love and enjoy and actually end up doing a career that's kind of completely different, but still finding a job that you really love. The other thing I would say is going back to, you remember when I said that the um, clients, when they can, in my business, will give business to people they like. Mm. One of the issues, or one of the things that some people in my industry suffer from is sometimes they're actually just not that interesting people. Like they, they, might be, they might be technically brilliant at what it is, or they might be the hardest working, but are they 
when they're speaking to a client over dinner, maybe over lunch, over breakfast, doesn't matter what social event it is. But sometimes people just have an inability to comfort the person they're with and get that person interested. Now, so, so that might be, you know, something about some book you've just read or your view on some amazing travel you've done or some sport that you're interested in or some piece of music that you love or some art that you love or something. You know, people need to be, I think, in, in my industry, but I would argue probably most services, most service industry businesses, you need to be, you know, rounded, interesting people such that people want, are quite comfortable spending time with you. Definitely. I was just going to ask um, back on to like your job at the moment. Is there, what, what has been the most sort of like dramatic deal you've done or most like significant moment um, in terms of, clients but also within the company itself i got an easy answer to that one it wasn't actually at the firm i'm at right now although the firm i'm at right now was on the deal but i was at ubs at the time okay uh and it was going back a few years but it was in 2015 i was in new york at the time with ubs and it was the ipo of, of ferrari wow so i probably spent 18 months before october 2015 spending my whole time with Ferrari, obviously mostly in Italy, getting to know the business, getting to know, you know, the brand, being driven around racetracks uh, at a wow. million miles an hour by F1 test drivers. Definitely a perk of the job. <laughs> uh, it, it was. And so the particular moment was, basically there's a tradition when you IPO a company, in this case on the New York Stock Exchange, mm -hmm. you go physically onto the New York Stock Exchange floor, and you have the traders all around the post, as it's called. And there's a lot of horse trading, literally, before the stock opens. And the stock opens when they ring the bell at New York Stock Exchange. So it's the big dramatic moment that you can you can always see on TV. And so for definitely the most exciting point in my career was after 18 months working on arguably the most exciting deal that ever happened. Being on the floor with the CEO of Ferrari on the New York Stock Exchange ringing the bell was, was pretty exciting. And the pressure um, kind of before that and leading up to that, how was... Um, that different to what you expected and how did you end up dealing with the probably insane workload that you had to deal with? Yeah, to be honest, it's a very good question. I, it was actually less the amount of work they had. It was more the profile of the situation. So, mm -hmm. for example, if it was a, I don't know, boring old chemicals company in Belgium and I gave bad advice and the deal was deemed to be a disappointment or let alone a failure. Obviously, I would have got in trouble with the client. My firm probably wouldn't have thought that much about me, but it wouldn't have been front page of the newspaper. Mm. The thing with, with the Ferrari deal is that the whole world was looking at it. you got to get it right. Exactly. <laughs> internally, externally. Actually, the CEO at the time, who very sadly has passed away, he's passed away a few, a few years ago, but he was arguably one of the most famous and successful industrialists uh, in Europe for many years, a guy called Sergio Marchioni. And he was a pretty scary dude, but incredibly impressive. And he actually said to me at one point, just before the stock started trading, there are reasons which I'm boy was quite technical, but they wanted the share price to go up, but not go up too much. So we priced the deal at $52. He wanted it to basically go up kind of 5 6%. And if it went up any more than that, as he said beautifully to me, he goes, I would kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a moment when we're standing by the post on the New York Stock Exchange 
Feeling like you've got your life on the line, probably. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of shouting and screaming by traders that was suggested that it was going to go up a lot. Oh. And he was looking at me across the floor as though he was going to kill me. <laughs> but in the end, it traded perfectly. Everything worked perfectly. And actually, the only thing from my professional life that I have framed at home is a picture of me and him outside the New York Stock Exchange with a bunch of vintage Ferraris behind us. And an email from him saying, James, thank you for the outstanding job you've done on my IPO. So, so uh, it was one of those ones that worked very well in the end. No, well done. Um, looking back on your career now, um, and particularly on that moment, is there any lessons you've learned um, generally and also, again, with Ferrari, like anything specific um, from different situations that you would go back and change or do differently or... Are you just happy with how it's gone basically up to this point? <laughs> I think one, one of the things one has to balance, and again, the one thing that is a truism on life is that everyone is different, and that's a good thing, right? A fashionable way of describing that is diversity in all its different definitions. But it is true, and it's the, one of the beauties of life is that, that we're all different. Um, and so this specific point, people have very different approaches to. And it's just true of any industry, any profession. Uh, it's not particular to mine. But there is always a balance between just working hard and doing a very good job and being a good person, both personally and professionally. And on the other hand is how much you respond and focus on your own personal ambition. And sometimes if you push too hard on personal ambition, it can suffer your integrity. The other side can get challenged. And if you think about politics and what's happened in our great country in the last couple of years, you know, there's been lots of evidence of perhaps too much self-ambition versus mm. what is better for the greater good. But some people, if they go slightly, they emphasize this side a little bit, the personal amb ambition, they can go really far and sometimes that bit further or that bit quicker. But they haven't lost their integrity, but they've got this, they've made sure they haven't forgotten about this. A little bit like what I said before about do something different every three years. So I guess when I reflect back on, on my mediocre career, as I call it, um, there were probably moments where I probably could have pushed myself and exercised that personal ambition a little bit more. And then you always have the uncertainty. Maybe I could have done this better and maybe I could have got here instead of there. But I will say that I haven't lost sleep about it about that but sometimes i've reflected on that point and i think you know there are all sorts of analogies one could make in in politics or in sport for example you know i'm sure there are plenty of great players but you know i actually told my son recently about his school report is you know it's the harry canes it's the lionel Messi's, these kind of guys that when training finishes and ben stokes another example training finishes they then go off and do another hour training mm. themselves right they're pushing themselves that extra bit that extra bit further than everyone else. And that's not for everyone, but sometimes you reflect, you know, could I have got to a different place if I'd either exercised that ambition muscle a little bit more or if I just worked a little bit a little bit harder. And talking about reflection, I think hindsight is such a wonderful thing. So if you had, I don't know, your 17-year-old 17, 17 self sat in front of you, um, looking back on your career, what would you say to that person? What I would say to that person a little bit reflects on what I said to you before. It's for me, it's all about option value. 
So satisfy yourself, 17-year-old person, that whatever you're doing, it is enhancing your ability to do different stuff, have access to different things, i.e. that optionality. So clearly as a 17-year-old, a lot of that is passing your exams, which is super important because, as I'm sure your parents will say to you, but certainly my father said to mine, is that if you get that bit wrong, then clearly that doesn't mean that you're going to be a disaster in life. It just makes it more of a challenge to exercise the value of the various wonderful, you know, complexity and, and diversity of life and all those options that those those afford. So it's not a question of, you know, don't be, na- don't be lazy, son. It's more just be thoughtful about what you're doing and make sure that it's enhancing to your ability to offer stuff to people going forward. So try and do things which are going to make you a more interesting, rounded, educated person, uh, which means you're going to be suitable and interested, interesting to, you know, more people. As being an interesting person, what do you actually enjoy outside of work um, when you have time to step away from your job? Like what what do you get up to? What do you do? (laughs) Well, right now I have no other, no other, uh, priority apart from yeah my family because i i have two kids and i had them i had them relatively late compared to like, my friends but they're, they're 10 and 8 years old so i'm all about my kids and related to that clearly is making sure that the 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 family is supported with one my time which is a challenge given the challenges on my time but also the the, the guidance and and support that they need but perhaps Aside from that, I mean, I've made a few sporting references so you can get, so I love my sport, so I will be at the first day of Lord's Test on Wednesday as a proud MCC member. Nice. I am a long, not always suffering, but, you know, Liverpool fan for many, many years. <laughs> so I, I, love, I love my sport. I also love my art. So I go to galleries quite a lot. I read about art quite a lot. I love my music. I used to like cars, but I've grown out of that. So Ferrari uh, must have been a dream for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never owned one. I, I couldn't. I always thought I'd look a bit silly driving one side. <laughs> and and probably I sh- should have mentioned actually, I am very very interested in local ecology and the wonderful wildlife that is left in England and what I can best do to support mm. that. And mentioning your children, I think for a lot of us the future can be quite a daunting and scary place. Um, and for them, are there any concerns that you have about, you know, the rise of AI and its impact on certain industries and how that'll affect them? Uh, it's a very good question. Actually, specific to that, not really. Okay. Uh, it might be a naive thought or naive assessment. My own view is I'm very persuaded by what history tells you, being a amateurish historian, mm-hmm. which is when you have history will tell you that when you have moments of extraordinary technological advance, there's always a lot of, oh, terrifying the world's going to end type of response. And typically, actually, what happens is a lot of it gets channeled into extraordinary creativity, which turns into extraordinary opportunity and actually very often increased employment. Whereas, you know, most people you listen to in in the radio or in politics are you know, very focused on the everyone's going to lose their job and machines are going to do all the jobs that, you know, humans used to do. I think if channeled 
in a constructive way, and obviously there's always a risk that it gets channeled in the wrong way, there is an incredible opportunity to automate, digitalize all sorts of very mundane things that human beings have to do and to have extraordinary advances in, in medicine, most obviously. So I think there's, there's for young guys like you, I think there's going to be extraordinary opportunity for it, which no one even has. A... And I think for me, especially when I'm thinking about the future kind of after university, that jump from education to actually getting into a career is quite a challenging one and I know a lot of students who are finishing university actually really struggle to get out into the working world um for you personally what was that jump like from history to actually getting a job and um yeah how did you kind of navigate the challenges that came with that good question again uh I don't think I found it particularly challenging. I, I think mm -hmm. because again, I was very lucky. I had, uh, you know, a lot of love and guidance in my family and, and from my school, which meant that I felt like I was mentally prepared for a lot of those things. And I guess because I did work hard at school and university and I got my exams, whatever, I always felt like I had that optionality to use my, probably my central theme of this discussion. Now I played out that optionality by doing that college of law thing because that's when i didn't really know what to do so that gave me a little bit more time which i think on reflection was, was I, I needed but i think what i i don't know you guys but i would think most people if they surround themselves with constructive thoughtful people you kind of get through it together right it's it's one of the exciting parts of life it's it's different it's a natural stage in, in, of development and again to one of my points made before if you stay interested you know, engaged, you know, you research, you ask questions, you, you know, there must be all sorts of really interesting, you know, parents at school that you could, you could meet or local organizations or anything, just speak, find out about the world. And then it's, it just becomes an exciting thing rather than a daunting thing. So the unknown is an interesting place to go into rather than a scary and something place. not but, to be scared of. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, the, the other truism of my world which again, I think is is very, very true for life in general, is is the concept of risk and rewards, right? There is no reward unless you take a little bit of risk, right? The lower amount of risk you take, the likely the lower amount of reward you will get. However, that reward is actually quantified. The beauty of being young is that that's the time where it makes most sense to actually to reach out and take an extra bit of risk. And I think that um, just personally, I think that if you don't put that risk into the world and you're not trying to you know trying for jobs that you might not think you have a chance at then you're never gonna actually get them whereas you know you were talking about the amount of rejection that you got from all these different jobs you were applying to and i think that is quite a common theme um throughout people who are successful in all kinds of different industries and it's being able to deal with that rejection and actually bounce back from that what, what I mentioned, when I was in the US, I used to spend quite a lot of time on the West Coast, so with, with tech companies and biotech companies, whatever. And in Silicon Valley, they have, I think, one of the best expressions ever, which is exactly consistent with, with what you just described, which is failure is data. Okay, So there's a more English thing. It's like, oh, I failed. Oh, my God, what a disaster. What, what the hell yeah. did I do? I've, I look such an idiot. Silicon Valley is like, you failed. The good thing is you know that that doesn't work. So you found out. 
right? And the next objective is to analyze why you failed, which will mean that you're more likely on the next experience to succeed. So on the job application, apply for a job, you don't get it. Okay, I didn't get it. Why didn't I get it? And I try and find out why I didn't get it. If I can, does that mean that my next attempt at finding it is going to be, you know, more improved? Mm. So that's a very important, you know, mindset. Um, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been, it's been brilliant and we've learned a lot. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, like any other pieces of advice or... Um like a story or a moment you want to share? I can't think of a kind of story or moment to share without embarrassing myself with something quite boring. <laughs> I, I think um, my piece of advice, or rather my, my wish, is it's very simple, but just you know, enjoy the richness of life. Mm. And I think, how does one do that? Because there's always an element of, of luck of that. And Definitely. Not everyone can achieve that. But the best way of trying to achieve that is just staying interested in life like there is a lovely tendency sometimes just to sit back and watch another movie but actually staying interested in the world interested in people interested in the diversity of life in all the different definitions of that and respecting difference be it cultural be it backgrounds whatever it is is really really important and can really enrich enrich your life okay well thank you so much have a good okay, day. Have a great Thank day. You. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Talking to the Top. Talking to the Top is hosted and produced by myself, Edward Brooke, and co-hosted and edited by Freddie Feynman. It was also edited by James Crawford, and the music was created by Daniel Marks.